This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome back to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. So it's Monday the 3rd of January uh, and it's the third week in a row when the government was meant to be making some kind of decision on upcoming COVID restrictions. But as you can see from the Spectator Data Hub, uh, England now has the lowest seven day rate of COVID across the devolved nations. So what does this mean for any upcoming restrictions? And has Boris Johnson actually called it right this time in delaying a decision on restrictions. James, maybe you can start by just setting the background on what's been going on in government over the last couple of weeks. So I think that before Christmas, there was a big debate about whether there were going to be more restrictions put in place or not. I think it is fair to say that at the beginning of that debate, Boris Johnson seemed to be in in, in what one might call alas mode. Alas, there is a need for more restrictions. But then there was kind of considerable pushback from the cabinet, from Tory MPs, And the data began to look a little bit better. There there became more and more signs that Omicron in a heavily vaccinated population was not as bad as previous waves of COVID had been. And, And so no restrictions were in place. And you now have ministers saying on their media rounds yesterday that they don't see anything in the data to suggest new restrictions are necessary. And I think that does suggest that that, that we're unlikely to get more restrictions this week. And I think the kind of question now becomes, if the data continues to look as it is, I think that that will stay the case. And I think that will then become what Boris Johnson argues for when he attempts to kind of get to repair relations with his party. His And a big part of his argument will be, I didn't lock us down again before Christmas. I went for a very mild set of measures and we didn't need to do more. And then contrast his decisions with those of Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Mark Drakeford in Wales. And I mean, that that will be how he, I think, attempts to restore relations with his own party. So, Fraser, we see in the beginning of that restoration now, because before Christmas, Boris Johnson had to be kind of opposed by his cabinet in putting more restrictions forward in a way that the cabinet hadn't done before. Is he going to be able to take the credit for not putting in place restrictions? Or is he going to just be seen as, you know, part of the witty lot, as it were? Yes, I think there's a good chance of him taking credit if this works out all right. So it's still early days, it's still only the 3rd of January. And there is, you know, Nadim Zahawi, the education secretary, was talking this morning about how COVID has peaked in London. I mean, there are some early signs suggesting that might be the case. But until, for example, the schools come back, it's difficult to say really where we're heading with this. But let's say Zahawi is right. And London now sees a sharp Omicron fall in the same way that South Africa saw a sharp fall, that the country follows it. Then you will get Boris Johnson who'll be able to say that his, it was the boosters what done it. It's almost impossible to say how intrinsically more harmful Omicron is. We just know how it's behaving in this heavily vaccinated population. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the major things that Britain has got right is the booster rollout. We're easily the most boosted country in Europe. I think something like 95% of over 60s are now boosted. And we found out a couple of days ago that these boosters give 90% protection against hospitalisation when Omicron comes along. So you've now got a system which has got incredible penetration of those most at risk with an incredible efficacy rate 
stopping you getting to hospital. And even of those who do get admitted to hospital, there are now antivirals and more treatments. So the science and the vaccines have created the situation where Britain doesn't have to lock down anymore because we've got a lot less reason to be worried about COVID case numbers. You can look every day and see almost 200,000 people um, getting diagnosed with COVID and PCR tests. And the Office for National Statistics will tell you that the real number is far, far higher. But what really matters is the patients showing up in hospital. That is going up, but not by no means anywhere like where it was this time last year. And there's been this also fascinating study released from the Intensive Care Monitoring Division um, today, where showing that the proportion of COVID patients in intensive care is really tanking very quickly. A couple of weeks ago, it was 17% of COVID patients in hospital were in intensive care. Now it's 7%. And the number of intensive care admissions is going down rapidly at a time where the number of people going into in a hospital for COVID is going up. Now, this combines with some fascinating data, which my colleagues at the Spectator Data Hub have uncovered over the last few weeks, showing that the length of stay in hospital used to be something like eight to ten days for somebody in their 80s. Now it's cut right down to five days. So you're getting out of hospital a lot early. You're way more likely to survive. All of these things mean there are less reason to lock down. And I think it's impossible to separate the success here with the success of the booster campaign. Look in Europe, it's a very, very different story. You've got um, Belgium's had to do an emergency lockdown. You've got Germany wondering if it's going to do the same. You've got Portugal that's had to close hospitality. You're getting a lot of quite concerned people in Europe where the books booster coverage is nowhere near as extensive. So we can see here the beginnings of a success story if Boris Johnson wants to tell it. Although it would be tempting fate, I think, to talk about success when there is still so much that can still go wrong in the next five to ten days. James, when it comes to boosters, before Christmas there was talk that a COVID pass would include boosters uh, in the new year uh, to, to show that not only have you had two jabs, you've also been boosted, which gives you more protection against Omicron. Where are conversations like that going in government at the moment? Are they still happening? I, I think they are complicated by the number of people who can't get their booster because they have had covid and you're meant to wait a month after you've had COVID before you get your booster. So I, I think they will be loath to add a kind of third vaccine requirement in until more of those people have been able to get their booster. I, I think, as Fraser said, COVID has a nasty habit of surprising you. And I think one of the other things to watch is how do hospitals cope, not with patient numbers, but staff absences. I mean, that is perhaps one of the bigger threats. If you look at Lincolnshire, the critical incident there isn't because they've got too many patients, is that they've not got enough staff because of a number of people having to isolate because of COVID. I mean, that is going to be one of the themes of this month, actually, is going to be this question of how do you keep essential services going? How do you keep schools going? How do you keep hospitals going when you have so many teachers, doctors and nurses off because they have contacted the virus. I mean, that right now, I think, is the thing that is causing the most concern, judging from the conversations I've been having in Whitehall, rather than the number of patients going into uh, ICU or onto ventilators. And that's interesting because in that case, the problem isn't COVID, 
but the government's response to COVID. I have um, a friend of mine whose whose wife is an NHS nurse. Now, she um, was in contact with somebody who had COVID, so she sent off for a PCR test. It took her days to get the result. And it seemed to me very strange that if you are a frontline key worker, whether you're a teacher or whether you're working for the NHS, there shouldn't be some kind of expedited system so you can get your results instantly. And I think that is a miss for the government. I think there's a lot it can do to change the guidance, to tighten up the speed. Already, one of the things that we track in the Spectator Data Hub is the number of NHS staff who are off due to COVID. Now, that's actually coming down in London recently. It was almost 6,000. It's now about 4,500. But there are other parts of the country where, proportionately, that is now the major problem. So I think what the government can do there is simply expedite testing. Right now, we've got a very strange system in Britain where lots of people who don't have symptoms, who don't really have any reason to think they've got COVID, are nonetheless encouraged to take a test. They might have to rationalise that test and prioritise those who are key workers if we're going to limit the economic damage. It would be pretty strange if that damage would be caused more than government policy than the virus itself. Yes, James, because apart from booster uh, ramp up, there's also been a ramp up in testing after the government's policy that you can just test daily instead of going into isolation if you've been double jabbed. But it seems like there's been a lot of severe testing shortages, haven't there? Yeah, because the go- I mean, people are behaving responsibly. The government are saying to people, not only should you test daily if you've been in contact with someone who had COVID, but they're encouraging you to, um, uh, I think the Welsh government's phrase is, I mean, it's been used by other people, flow before you go. So, you know, the idea is that if you're going to go out and see people, take a lateral flow test before you do it. Obviously, if you start encouraging people to do that, that is going to put huge pressure on your testing infrastructure and the number of tests that kits that you have available because, you know, everyone is going to start doing it. And I think, as Fraser says, that one of the difficult questions the government is going to have to face in the coming weeks, I think, is how do you prioritise? They've already said that they've got a kind of separate priority lane to ensure that all secondary school children can be tested before they go back to school. I, I think they are going to have to do more to reserve or, or create kind of faster testing routes for key workers, the kind of people needed to keep the country moving. I think the other big question is what happens? There's obviously been lots of intergenerational mixing over Christmas. Does that then start feeding through into case numbers and causing more concern? But at the moment, I I do get the sense that the concern is, is more over staff absences than the numbers of people that have been admitted to hospital because of COVID. Now, Fraser, Parliament comes back on Wednesday from recess and and ahead of that, the government obviously will be looking at a lot of the data very closely. What what more data can we expect to see that might change the calculus? I think every day now will bring quite significant new data. This was uh, thereby vindicating, I think, the Cabinet's decision to wait and see what the data would bring. And the idea of it peaking in London, I think, is interesting and it will become clearer every single day whether that is the case or not. The intensive care usage, I think, will get every single day that picture is solidifying as well. Average length of hospital stay, I think, I don't think it is right that only the spectator has calculated this from the, the release that the government does. The, the government does have figures on this, it hasn't released them. I think it should do, because it's a really important part of this puzzle. If Omicron patients get out significantly faster than Delta ones, as they did in South Africa, that is a factor, and I think that um, it's something the health officials will know. You can discern it from the data, and that ought to be released. And so I think that um, 
right now, the feeling, you know, certainly amongst the politicians I speak to, is that we've passed the moment of maximum danger. That initially, Plan B, you know, the vaccine passports and all the rest of the apparatus and the work-from-home guidance, was on the basis that Omicron could well be just as dangerous as Delta. I think it's now fairly well established that it's significantly less dangerous than Delta, whether that's to do for intrinsic reasons or to do with our impressive vaccine response. So I think the conversation will soon start to turn, not as to whether there should be more restrictions, but whether we should keep the restrictions we've already got, specifically these vaccine passports, which seem to be no use to man or beast, but are still up and running. I think it's going to become harder to justify that if the direction of travel keeps going in the encouraging way that it is. You've also got the issues of kids wearing masks in school. Now, that's controversial. It's something the teachers' unions were calling for. Is that going to be justified by the time they come to review it in a couple of weeks' time? I suspect probably not. But I do think that everyday passes gives us that much more real-world data. The story so far has been a competition, if you like, between the sage modelling and between real-world data. And I think the more um, actual evidence we have to go on, the better the quality of decisions that will be made. I, I think one of the things I might add, which I think is perhaps one of the most hopeful things, is, is Chris Hobson, who's the CEO of NHS Providers. He is pointing out this morning that CEOs across the country, I'm quoting from his Twitter thread here, which is very informative, striking that CEOs across the country are echoing London colleagues and pointing to the fact that care home Omicron outbreaks are not translating into hospital admissions. That, I think, is very important and very encouraging news. That suggests that you are not going to see a huge influx of older people into hospitals after Christmas, even after this intergenerational mixing. And I mean, again, that takes us back. And one of his themes is that, you know, the biggest issue now is going to be staff absence rather than the sheer volume of people coming into hospital because of COVID. And Fraser, all of those numbers that you mentioned, will they be available on the Spectator Data Hub? Uh, yes, um, on data.spectator.co.uk. If anybody hasn't visited the Data Hub, this is a great chance to look at it. We have got now pretty much every single piece of um, relevant COVID information on the Data Hub updated automatically when it happens. And I'll also give you one figure which we don't have on the Data Hub, but I think still think is incredibly important. Last time around, something like... of all COVID deaths were from care homes. It was such a massive factor. And that was um, not just in Britain, but internationally. I think it was 44% in Scotland. I think it was 60% in Canada. What James just said is so important, because if it isn't happening this time, then one of the biggest sources of COVID uh, deaths, which is the way it's impossible to, very hard to contain, or was very hard to contain in care homes, that is not happening this time, and perhaps because of the boosters. So that could well be one of the most important things that we learned during the course of this week. Fraser and James, thanks very much. And thank you for listening to this episode. Now, remember, if you enjoy this podcast, you can find more political analysis from The Spectator through the Evening Blend newsletter, which you can get at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.